The following is a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions. Well, welcome back to uh, uh, day one post-euphoria day, I guess is what I should say. I mean, the market, there was so much euphoria going on in the market yesterday afternoon, and we hit all-time new highs, and everybody's really excited. So, um, you know, this is kind of the day after, and it looks like the market's going to even open up a little more today. Uh, we've got with us, you know, Peggy, and if I forgot to tell you that Peggy Tuck is sitting over there. Good morning, Peggy. Good morning, everyone. And um, and so, in fact, I guess I should give you the number because I haven't been doing that very well, no. have I, Peggy? Yeah, they, Peggy, if they have a question, yeah, they need Peggy, to know how to call us. Peggy's <laughs> always pointing at me the things I'm not doing right, and, and this is one of them. Let me give you the number because uh, we've got a great guest on for you in just a few moments. And if you'd like to ask him a question, this is a person who will probably give you the answer. 877 711-5611. That's the call-in number. It's it's a live show, so give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, when, when Peggy gets a really good guest, a really great guest, we like to have them back on again. And we are fortunate enough to have with us one of our favorite guests and one of the brighter guys on Wall Street uh, is Morgan Housel. Morgan Housel, an analyst and a columnist at The Motley Fool. If you've not, if, if those of you that are just new to investing and you're not familiar with The Motley Fool, you need to go on and you need to go to their website. You will find a huge resource of information. Uh, these guys write extremely well. They give good, solid advice. They've been giving it for years. Uh, Morgan is one of the top people there. He's a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers and was selected for the Best Business Writing 2012 uh, from the Columbia Journalism Review. And so we have with us today uh, Morgan Housel. Morgan, welcome back to the show, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, listen, I saw, uh, well, you know, we're, we're all talking about the euphoria, and I know that you, you're very aware of what's going on here. Uh, but I saw I saw a high, I saw a headline this morning. Didn't have anything to do with with the stock market, but it, uh, we've been talking lately about Bitcoin. Not that I understand it, but uh, but it was a bit it was a Bitcoin trader, and this is what he was saying about Bitcoin. And I think it really translates to the market. It says, "Don't worry about the crash because you know it's crashed recently. This chart shows we should have seen it coming. Is it the same? Are we going to be saying the same thing about the stock market?" In in a in a couple months or maybe a couple years that you know, uh, don't worry about the crash. We should have seen it coming. Bitcoin is something completely different. You know, there, there's a quote uh, from Paul Volcker, the ex-Fed chairman, the other day. Someone asked him about Bitcoin, and he said, "Look, I'm 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 80 something years old. I'm too old for that stuff. I have no idea what Bitcoin is. I'm I'm considerably younger than Volcker, and I'm going to say the same thing. I really don't understand what's going on there, what the allure behind it is, what's pushing it higher." Uh, it's something like Bitcoin where, where it's not backed by any earnings, it's not backed by anything, uh, really is a pure speculative play. So that's, uh, that's, that's something completely different. Whether we'll be saying that about the market, I think there's an important point to make about the market, that no matter where we are, what point in the cycle we are, what the economy is doing, what companies are doing, there is always going to be a pullback sometime ahead. That's just part of what markets do. You know, in the past 100 years, there have been 22 times that the S&P has dropped at least 20% from its previous high, so about once every five years. 
that's just something markets do. It doesn't mean that the economy is broken or that the stock market is broken or that you're being cheated by Wall Street. It's, this is just a natural part of what markets do. It's just in their nature to do that. So when, when people ask, are we due for a pullback? Is there going to be a pullback ahead? I think the answer is inevitably yes. But I would have given you that same answer a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. Now, when we are in this state of uh, more euphoria than I think we've seen in a while, does that up the, chan- does that up the chances that we'll see uh, a significant pullback in the, in the near term? Uh, sure, I, I, I think there's good reasoning to that. Uh, I, I would be much more hesitant to predict when that might come or how large it might come or, or how large it might be. Uh, you know, there, there have been people that have been uh, saying that the market was getting way ahead of itself for the past five years as the S&P uh, more than doubled in price. Uh, and when they made those arguments, let's say back in 2010, they sounded rational and they sounded sane, uh, and the market has gone up 40% since then. So my, my big takeaway from everything is that, yes, we, we are probably going to have a pullback in the future, but that things are inherently uh, unpredictable, uh, and that I want to try to base my investing uh, style and my investments around trying to guess what would happen next. So, uh, so you're just now you're just kind of going with the flow. Then, are you uh, are you are you doing anything defensive? I mean, you know, there are people that've been in the in the market for a long, long time, and uh, maybe th- there's some that wisely didn't even get out in 2008. And then we've got people that are just literally coming in now. Uh, d- would you give di- uh, different advice to somebody just coming into the market maybe this spring or just this week than you would somebody that's been in it since 2008? I think it's really hard to give blanket advice in the investment world. I think the most important question that anyone can ask themselves when they're investing is how long am I investing for? Are you investing for six months, one year, five years, 50 years? You know, if someone is in their 20s and saving for retirement, that is a very different uh, style of investing than someone who is maybe five years from retirement. It's a completely different scenario. Um, so if someone has five to ten years or more ahead of themselves, then I would say, you know, this probably is not a, a, a bad time to invest. If you have a long uh, uh, time horizon in front of you, valuations aren't extreme right now. The market's come up a lot. Future returns will be lower from today than they would have been one year ago. That's just a mathematical certainty of, 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 of what we're dealing with here. But I would not say it's a bad time to invest today if you have – a proper uh, long-term outlook. For, for someone who is trying to time the market and say, I, should I get in now and maybe get out six months from now, or vice versa, should I sell everything now and then try to get back in after the crash? That, that's a very difficult thing to do. And I'm, I'm, I've, I've really become convinced uh, that virtually no one can do that consistently, profitably. Oh, gee. And that, you mean that commercial I saw about the market timers? Last night is incorrect. You know, there's, there's a there's this commercial uh, running right now that, that basically says, you know, you don't think anybody can time the market. Yes, they can, and you're absolutely right. Uh, nobody can time the market, and never and never yeah, have been able to, and there, probably never. There, there's, Go ahead. There's I'm probably sorry. a reason that there's probably a reason that they have a really nice, flashy, shiny commercial on TV because if the product worked, it would sell itself without having to be advertised on TV, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Now, does the uh, uh, we've we've heard lately, particularly yesterday, uh, Fed uh, the Fed Governor uh, uh, from uh, I think he's from Philadelphia, yeah, Fed President Charles Plosser said started talking yesterday, and he he gave a speech in Hong Kong, and he's beginning to talking about the uh, the possibility of the of the Fed now backing off of their quantitative easing. 
Obviously, yeah. there's been a lot of discussion that so much of this market move um, is, has been based upon the Fed, Fed's quantitative easing. In fact, I had a guest several weeks ago that just came out and said, you know, in his opinion, and it was just, of course, his opinion that 500 points of the S&P were directly attributable to quantitative easing. Uh, what is your thought on the quantitative easing situation? And when they start taking the uh, uh, the foot off the pedal, what do you expect it to do to the markets? Well, I think there could be two sides of that story. I, I, I think uh, to a certain extent it is undeniable that quantitative easing uh, is responsible for some of the rally in stocks over the past five years. That's, that, 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 that seems uh, so obvious to me that, that it's undeniable. I think the other side of that story, though, that people might miss is that the Fed will start pulling back on quantitative easing, on this money printing that they're engaging in. They will begin to pull back when there are clear signs that the economy is strengthening. So the question then becomes, will the lack of quantitative easing offset the stronger economy? Uh, hey, Morgan, if, you could, if you'll hang on, we'd like to cover the rest of that on the other side of the break. We'll be back with Morgan Housel, the Motley Fool, in just a few moments, folks. We've got a great show. Stay with us. You're listening to Mike Robertson, Straight Talk Money, where you get straight answers to your questions about your money. Back to you in just a moment. The following is a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions. Okay, for those of you that are trying to figure out where the market's going, why it is where it is, we're trying to help you out today. We've got with us one of the brightest analysts on Wall Street. He's an analyst and economist at The Motley Fool, uh, two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers. And last year he was selected Best Business Writing 2012, an anthology from the Columbia Journalism School. Prior to joining The Motley Fool, he was a private equity analyst at Triton Pacific Capital Partners in Los Angeles. We've got with us today Mr. Morgan Housel of The Motley Fool. And Peggy and Morgan were having this conversation during the break, and so I've asked Peggy to ask the same question because I thought Morgan's answer was really great. And so, Peggy, why don't you uh, restate that for the folks out there? Okay. Well, basically, because um, we've got just some of the smartest listeners around, um, a listener sent me a chart this morning, and they happen to be a very, very positive person when it comes to um, the markets. And the chart is actually showing uh, this short interest ratio. It says that it's got about 19 days to cover at average volume, which is rather large. And um, they feel that the short interest may fuel that next leg up. And I wanted to get Morgan's thoughts on that. Yes, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that that would be the case. So when people are shorting uh, stocks, they're betting against the company. Uh, and they're, so they're, they, they've, they've sold, they've borrowed shares, sold them, and then they need to buy them back, hopefully at a lower price later. And then so, so the idea here is that by buying them back, uh, they will be forced. They they will push the price of the market up. I, I think that's an entirely reasonable theory. It makes a lot of sense. I'm not really convinced that there is a lot of evidence that it it works that way in practice. However, I think when it gets very extreme, when you have an individual company uh, where you have the you know huge amounts of investors betting against it, uh, and uh, it, it's a, a small company that is thinly traded then you can really get situations where you have these so-called short squeezes that can push the stock up considerably. I think when we're talking about a moderate level against the entire broader market, it becomes much less certain. So 
So I think it's 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 a reasonable theory that that might work, and that might be the case. Um, I'm I, I'm much more concerned uh, in in the fundamentals of what's going to make the of what's what's going to drive stocks over the next decade, several decades. Uh, so these short-term movements that might be influenced by things like short squeezes uh, really don't have much interest to me. You know, if, if you're a day trader trading in individual stocks, that might be something that is relevant to you. I, I think for long-term traders, that, that would fall in, into the noise category of information that we're looking at. Okay. Uh, the, uh, that was interesting. See, I'm glad I, I'm glad I got you two talking about that. Um, I saw an interview with John Husband of the Husband Funds this morning, and John was saying that he felt like earnings were significantly, he used the number 70%, over, over the norm. And he felt like we were overbought and a little bit overbullish. What are your thoughts? Do you think these corporate earnings, you know, so it seems to me like so much of the earnings – uh, the positive earnings that corporations have been able to achieve have come from reduction of um, of their labor force and 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 really getting lean and mean in so many areas. And I look at Alcoa, for instance, and their announcement earlier this week. Even though they made their numbers, their top line was not growing, and it concerns me that the top line is not growing on so many of these companies. And as a equity analyst, what are your thoughts on on? On corporations, are we going to see some contraction in earnings? Have they have they gotten have they squeezed as much blood out of the turnip as they can get by reduction of expenses? And are we going to see a more either a leveling off of earnings here in in corporate America, or do you expect them to continue to rise? Well, this is a really interesting topic. I think uh, so. There are uh, first there are a few different ways that you can measure profit margins. I think the way that John Hussman, as you, as you mentioned, uh, measures it uh, is total corporate profits, which is measured by the Federal Reserve as a percentage of GDP. Uh, when you look at that over time, it, it, it shows that corporate profit margins right now are extremely high, maybe 70% above average, as, as John Hussman uh, might allude to. I, I think right. there are some, some tweaks in there that might make comparison over time apples to oranges. So for, for one example, companies get more of their profits from overseas companies today than they did in the past. So that increases their profits, but that doesn't, uh, that doesn't affect the denominator of GDP. So that makes it a little bit apples to oranges. There's also something more technical here of how business structures have changed over time. So in the past decade, we, we've seen a large increase in REITs, real estate investment trusts. So buildings that maybe in the past were owned by individuals, and then the rents from that building was counted as personal income. Now they're owned by corporations, and now the rents from that building is counted as corporate income. So just because the structure of businesses has changed, uh, that, that influences profits too. So there are several things within that context that can make those comparisons uh, when you're looking at them over time, a sort of apples to oranges comparison. That's, that, that's sort of the wonky, nerdy view of what we're talking about here. But I think there's a much more important point that, yes, I, I think to the extent that corporate profits have done very well over the past decade, a lot of that is being uh, uh, fueled by companies becoming lean and mean, as you say, cutting back their workforce. There's actually a great story in uh, Bloomberg last week that Walmart has cut so many employees over the last few years that they don't have enough employees to stock their shelves properly anymore. And uh, there, are, there are stories around the country of people going to Walmart and finding empty shelves. They just don't have enough employees to stock them. Uh, so, so, so people look at that and they say, okay, 
so the, the, these companies have grown lean and mean. They have high margins. Revenue isn't growing that much. And therefore, when this all reverses, profits might come down. But the other side of that story is what is going to make profit margins come down? If profit margins are high because they have cut back their workforce, then profit margins might fall when they start adding to their workforce and when they start raising workers' wages. So, yes, profit margins will fall, but then if they're adding to their workforce, that's great for economic growth. Those workers are going to go out and buy products. They're going to buy a car. They're going to buy a house. They're going to go on vacation. That, in total, is good for the economy. If you think the last time that profit margins fell was the 1990s, and I don't need to remind anyone uh, that the 1990s was not a bad time to own stocks. If you look at this historically over time, there's very little correlation between profit margins and what the stock market is doing, because there's two sides of that coin. If businesses are laying off workers to increase their profits, well, that's, that's good for profit margins, but it slows down economic growth. And then if they start hiring workers, that hurts their profit margins, but it's good for economic growth, and it sort of balances, it, 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 it balances out in the end. So uh, is there anything out there that you see that, uh, that we need to be looking for in terms of corporate profit? Do you see uh, any hiccup in corporate profit at all? I mean, it, so much of, like you mentioned, it, so much of the growth uh, in, in U.S. corporations now comes from selling overseas, and we wake up every morning to the crisis du jour uh, from, you know, it's, it's Cyprus or it's uh, France or it's even, actually, they were actually, banging on Germany earlier this week, uh, and it seems like the world is weakening. It seems like even China is slowing down a little bit, uh, and that's would seem to me that that will have a big impact on U.S. corporations because a lot of their customers seem to be in trouble. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. If you go back five years ago, people wanted to own overseas stocks because it gave them exposure to overseas. They said, I don't want the weak U.S. economy. I'd rather be invested uh, in Europe and in China and India and Japan, and and now they're using the exact the exact opposite argument. Uh, the exact opposite argument. They're saying I don't want international exposure because that's giving me exposure to to weak Europe, right? Uh, so you know it, it goes back and forth. Uh, and, and yes, to, to to the extent that uh, that that companies in the S and P five hundred uh, have a lot of business in Europe, that that's not a good thing. Of course, that that that's going that's going to hurt profit growth in the short term. I think what investors should think about is is what profits are going to do over the next decade. If, if we're talking about the next six months or the next year, uh, yes, it's, it's going to be volatile and go up and down. But if we're looking over the next decade, I think it's clear that we'll, we'll be earning more in the future than we are today. Okay, Morgan, hang on. When we come back, I just have a few more questions to ask you, if you'll stay with us for just a moment. We've got Morgan Housel, analyst and columnist at The Motley Fool. Stay with us, folks. We've got a great show going on. The following is a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions. Welcome back, folks. We've had a great show today with one of our favorite guests, Mr. Morgan Housel, analyst and columnist at The Motley Fool. And, Morgan, you uh, you wrote a great article the other day called Conversations with the Bear, and you uh, you uh, interviewed Chris Martinson, and I can remember seeing a, a video uh, set that Chris did several years ago, and if you watch that thing, you just wanted to go find a place to hide because he was such a bear. Uh, I mean, really, I don't. Did you ever see that one where he, you know, he showed how the whole 
financial world was put together and how it was going to fall apart. I mean, it was just it was just amazing. I you know I I just thought well, maybe I should move to Costa Rica or something. It was just really awful. But uh, you 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 discussed things with him and you uh, and you made some points. And I want to really kind of talk about some of your points versus Chris's and and ask you about a few things because in in your column you had. Uh, you start out one paragraph saying gold, you're skeptical. And, you know, there are a lot of people still hanging on to the vision that gold is a great investment. I've really never thought it was such a great investment. Uh, and certainly it hasn't uh, been showing so as of late. In fact, it was really kind of remarkable, remarkable to me, and I made note of it on the show, is that uh, several weeks ago when the Cyprus thing really was uh, coming to fore and, and they were – uh, it was Monday morning, and they were taking money from people's uh, bank accounts. Uh, gold actually went down. Uh, what are your thoughts on the precious metals now going forward? Would you suggest people get out of them? Do you see? Are, are you still skeptical about about gold as an investment? Well, I'm I'm personally skeptical. I wouldn't recommend that anyone uh, change their investments based on what I'm talking about today. But my personal view of gold is when when you're talking about gold, for one, it's hard to have discussions with people who disagree about it, because it ultimately turns into a conversation about politics and political philosophies and ideologies. Right. And it's, a very, it's a very emotional subject for people to talk about, which kind of skewers the debate back and forth when, when, when people discuss it. But I think if you, do, if, if you take a step back from the politics and the ideology and you just look at the math, the numbers, the statistics, and you say, what does gold correlate well with? And what what pushes gold ahead over time historically? What types of uh, uh, what, what what has happened in the economy that makes gold do well? Surprisingly, it doesn't correlate very well with inflation. Whether we have low inflation today or high inflation today, uh, it, it really doesn't tell you much about what gold is going to do. If you think about uh, the mid and late 1980s, we had pretty high inflation. We had four, five, six percent inflation, and the price of gold plunged. And then you think about 2010, 2011, we had very low inflation, and gold did extremely well. So what gold does correlate well with are negative real interest rates. By real interest rates, I mean the interest rate minus inflation. Uh, it, gold correlates very well with that. It also correlates well with financial panic. So you get these 2008 collapses, sort of the panic that we had uh, in 2010 and 2011 with Greece, when it was, when it was looking like Greece was going to close back then. Those type of events tend to be very positive for gold. However, if we are heading into a situation in the economy, as I tend to believe the economy will be strengthening, we will likely see rising interest rates going forward. And I think you can make a case that we are moving into a new stage of the financial crisis uh, where people uh, react to uh, financial news with a greater sense of equanimity and less panic, That's, which is what we saw with Cyprus over the last few weeks. You know, it looked like Cyprus, the banking system is imploding. The rumors that maybe they might be leaving the euro. And the market's response was a giant shoulder shrug. We didn't really care much. You contrast that to what went on with Greece two years ago, and it's night and day. So I think if we are moving into a new phase in the economy, we're going, we're going to see slightly faster economic growth and a little bit less panic and more calm. Uh, I, I, I personally wouldn't want to be owning gold in that situation. You know, these, these things move in cycles. Uh, from assets doing very well for a decade or 15 years and then doing very poorly in the following decade. That's true for stocks. It's true for bonds. We're, we're at a period where gold has done extremely well over the past 10 or 15 years. 
which historically, just from that data point alone, uh, doesn't bode well about what's going to happen over the next 10 or 15 years. And certainly as a long-term investor, I would much rather own uh, high-quality stocks than gold. All right, that's you know, and I agree. I agree with everything you say. Now, in your article, also you make a, a great case, I guess, for the buy and hold. Uh, you you talk about uh, about how buy and hold uh, investors have really done well over the long run. So I'm assuming that you're probably your stand is still the same, right? Is that uh, if you if you've got a good position that's really performing the way you want it to, and maybe providing something into your portfolio. A lot of people bought uh, dividend-paying stocks, for instance, to make up for the fact that they can't. Uh, get great CDs at the bank. Uh, are you still um, still holding out that probably buying hold for most people is still the best way to approach the market? Uh, that, that, that's absolutely the case. And look, at with the market at an all-time high right now, uh, it is literally true that no one who has ever practiced buy and hold has ever lost money. That's literally true right now. You contrast that with how the average investor, professional or amateur or otherwise, has performed over the past 20 years, we're not talking since the financial crisis, but over the long term, the vast majority of investors, professional or otherwise, will substantially underperform the market because they, they buy in right at the top, they sell at the bottom. It's, it's the classical buy high, sell low, the, the exact opposite of what you should do. They're always trading in and out, so they have high transaction fees, high taxes. When you add it all together, there's substantial evidence uh, um, the 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 most relevant being uh, by a, a UC Berkeley professor named Terrence Barb, uh, who uh, who has shown that the, that investors who trade the most, who are the most active at trying to time the market, perform the worst by far. Whereas the investors that uh, that, uh, that basically effectively buy and hold over long periods of time, years or even decades, do well consistently. It's hard for investors to do that because I think. Uh, when people think of long-term, I, I think sometimes they might think six months, nine months, one year. We're really investing long-term needs to be 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And a lot of people just don't have that patience. And then something like 2008 rolls around, and they start questioning the wisdom. They start questioning whether it's different this time, whether the economy is broken, whether they've been cheated by Wall Street. Uh, most investors over time won't have the fortitude to stick it out as they should, but I think the evidence is overwhelming that uh, the, the best investment philosophy for most investors uh, is long-term buy and hold. Yeah, and I agree. I think for most people, you know, market timing, uh, I just, I, I, I like you, I believe that market timing doesn't work. I don't suppose either one of us will ever be interviewed by market timers because uh, we don't believe, uh, we believe in what they do. Uh, all right, Good. one last thing. Um, there's been a lot of research that uh, has come out lately that, uh, when we have a very strong first quarter of the year, that we generally end up positive for the year. In fact, uh, research done by Convergent Wealth shows that 92% of the time, if we had a positive first quarter, that we would uh, end up positive for the year. Are you optimistic about the year? Do you think we've uh, we've hit our peak and we're going to spend the rest of the year going sideways, or do you think we've got a, a good year coming? Well, I think it's certainly possible that we'll have a, a good year coming. You know, there are a few... Uh, macro trends right now that I think will help the economy. Uh, the the rebound in housing uh, is certainly one of them. Not necessarily housing prices, but housing construction. That tends to be a, a, a big tailwind for the economy, and that's going great right now. Uh, number two is the is the end of consumer deleveraging, and what I mean by that is for the last 
five years, consumers have spent a tremendous amount of effort repairing their balance sheets, shedding debt, defaulting on debt, paying down debt. That slows economic growth, and there's some evidence that that is coming to an end. So that's great. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible that we could that we could have a great rest of the year, both for the economy and the stock market. I, I would also it's it's absolutely true though that. Uh, the biggest news story of the next, let's say, two or three, two, three, five years w- will almost certainly be something that nobody is talking about today. That has always been true. So I think when people look ahead and they say, oh, yeah, I, I see nothing but blue skies ahead of me, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of ignores that the world is always changing and things are always popping up to surprise us that no one can even think about today because there are events Absolutely. that have not transpired yet. Absolutely. In fact, uh, you had a quote in one of your articles called Risk is What's Left Over When You've Thought of Everything Else by Carl Richards. Listen, Morgan, we've got to go, but thank you so much for being with us today. Really really appreciate it. Folks, thank you for listening, and I'll look forward to talking to you tomorrow. I hope you have a great day. God bless. You have been listening to a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions.